This podcast is also part of a pod course, which is available for credit on speechtherapypd.com. All you need to do is register for the course, complete the requirements, and you will receive credit. Speechtherapypd.com is a video continuing education company, a certified ASHA CE provider. First Bite sure does love some freebies, and I grew up loving some coupons. That's my kinfolk's way of saying coupons. I can't even say it correctly. (laughs) And so to start the new year off right, we wanted to do a little give back. So if you head on over to speechtherapypd.com and enter the code FIRSTBITE, not to be confused with the autocorrect of Frostbite, well, then you will find a fabulous $10 off coupon for an annual subscription. That will give you access to all of the one to three hour webinar courses, as well as all the First Byte pod courses for CEUs for an annual membership of only $79. But hey, do you want more? Don't you love that cheesy sales line? I love that cheesy sales line. Okay, well, if you do, you can use that same coupon, First Byte, and access all of the courses on speechtherapypd.com's website for a fabulous deal of $179 a year. Whoop, whoop. So don't forget, plug in the coupon First Bite when you check out at the speechtherapypd.com website. Happy listening, y'all. Hi, it's Erin. I'm your regular co-host of First Bite. First of all, I want to thank y'all so much for tuning and listening to First Bite. We've been incredibly encouraged and excited by the feedback we've received and are looking forward to the future. In the meantime, if you've been enjoying First Bite, please take a moment, maybe pause your device to subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening. This podcast started out as a small idea to bring convenient, tangible resources to SLPs and other professionals, and we value your feedback more than anything. Leaving those reviews truly helps us out. Enjoy the episode, and thanks for listening. folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, functional resources for the pediatric clinician. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MSCCC SLP, the All Things Peds SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, in Cola Town, South Carolina, and guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light and hope to the world for the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding best practice for running a private practice, and all the nitty-gritty details involving feeding and swallowing by interviewing the subject matter experts themselves. We bring the data to you. Every fourth episode, I am joined by the lovely Erin Forward, MSP, CF, SLP, a Yankee transplant who actually inspired this journey and who also walks the wild, woolly, and sometimes sticky walk of early intervention with us. Sit back, relax, and watch out for all the squirrels, and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Let's 
let me introduce my dear friend, Paul Tardy, OTRL, owner of PTBOT Therapy and Wellness. I can barely begin to describe how much this sweet friend, affectionately dubbed my big brother from a different mother, and his beautiful wife, Jennifer Tardy, of Eating for Healing mean to me. They were instrumental in me stepping out in faith and opening my own practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, LLC. So I have to start out with a very honest statement today, folks, and share a few quick Irish tears. None of this would have happened if Paul hadn't said several years ago, kid, you got this. So there it is. I, from the bottom of my heart, love you both. And now that I'm crying, we're just going to keep on trucking because that happens. <laughs> so today's episode is all about fun, needing functional, and we are covering all things OT. And I learned a long time ago, if you want to irritate or to quote my grandma, piss them off, then tell an OT that they are hand and stacking blocks folks only and watch them murder you slowly with laser eyes. <laughs> Paul has been instrumental in educating me otherwise, and today's episode is all about that. So let me introduce Paul. Paul, how's it going, sir? And what exactly does an OTRL mean? Because I don't have a freaking clue. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, thanks a lot for having me on, Michelle. I know it took a while, but I really thank you for your persistence and you know it, just having me on. And it's it's a, it's a real honor. And um. Let's go ahead and talk OT. So first of all, OTR, the R means registered. So that's national board registration. So once you pass your boards, that you after you come out of OT school, you have to take a national license uh, examination. Okay. And once you pass, then you get the R next to your OT. So once you get OT school, once you get your bachelor's degree, you're now an OT. And then the R stands for registered, nationally board certified. Okay. And then the L is licensed. So the OTR slash L means you're licensed and also you're, you're board certified. So that kind of sums that up. Okay. I've always wondered that because, I mean, you know, SLPs have all their CCC business after our names because, you know, we're fancy like that. But <laughs> I never really understood. And I didn't want to be the person to be like, so what does this mean? <laughs> but, you know. We're in a zone of safety here, so I can be totally quirky and nerdy, and I don't have to explain myself. You get me. No, absolutely. You know. That's, I'm glad we're doing that. Yeah, that sounds good. Okay. All right. So I first became exposed to OTs a million years ago when I worked as a quote-unquote speech teacher back in the Virginia Public Schools, and Miss Mandy, and for the life of me, I can't remember her last name. She was the very first OT R. L that I ever saw. And the first time I saw her, she was working with handwriting with a whole bunch of my students. And, you know, she was in the preschool classroom and she was working on blocks. And the next time I saw her, she was working with a little one that had um, was on the spectrum and had them on a swing. And she was swinging this kid very aggressively. And I distinctly remember telling Mandy, don't you just do handwriting, which is where my laser eye joke comes from. And she looked at me, she goes, no, I do a little bit more. And I was like, oh, cool. <laughs> but she never elaborated. And I don't know if it's because I deeply offended her soul or like what happened at that moment. What exactly is occupational therapy? <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a loaded question, right? Oh, my goodness. Speaking to all my friends out there, they're OTs and speech therapists as well as PTs if they're listening. 
So occupational therapy, and it's, I always go back to, because I always, it's, it's this thing I, I get out of school, you know, I graduated back in a long time ago, back when it was a bachelor's degree. And, you know, I get out of school and I'm like, oh my God, what is, what is OT? You know, what does that mean? And, and basically it goes back to the, you know, the, the term itself, occupation. So what's, what is human occupation? You know, so the term occupation in itself, what does that come to, you know, what do you think of when you think of occupation? My ADLs, like functioning. Well, for me talking, I mean, Lord knows if I couldn't talk, I wouldn't have an occupation, but I think of engaging. Yeah, occupation, there you go. So that's your world. job, right? So, yeah. so when, I, when I ask the question to, to people, I say, you know, I kind of bring it back to them because they go, what is occupational therapy? And I, and I always say it's the other therapy. That's what the O stands for. It's the other therapy. <laughs> you think of the therapies and that's what you get, but... That's occupation good. people think of jobs like you're going to help me find a job or you're going to help me you know get therapy with my job or i always kind of came around that going ah it's not about that it's not about that but it kind of is it's and you think about jobs meaningful activities you know human occupation is meaningful activity that helps us to become unique in who we are and that goes from anything from getting up in the morning getting out of bed going to the bathroom, to making a cup of coffee, to brushing your teeth, to riding in your car, driving in your car, getting ready for it. So all the things that we take for granted, all the things that we don't really think about because they're already part of our routine, all those things are human occupations that when we become compromised, our system becomes compromised, or if we get sick, we get injured, those things become very apparent. Like, how do I get out of bed with a broken leg? You know, how do I get out of bed if I've had a stroke? And in our profession, you know, working in, you know, early intervention, medically complex profession or that clientele, you could look at that and say, you know, what are those, what are the jobs for little kids? I mean, what, what are their jobs? Mm-hmm. And you could go as far back as, you know, like you and I, we both work in, you know, for, um, you know, birth to three. That's our, that's our field, medically complex kids. Some of these kids we see when, when I first go in and see them, they're not doing any, some of these little kids with failure to thrive, they're not even picking their head up. So very first thing they need to do, part of their job is to learn how to move. So this thing about OT is this massive umbrella that encompasses so much about human occupation. And that's what I love about OT is that if it involves meaningful activity, and that meaningful activity is unique to each individual, because what might be important to me might not be important to, you know, someone else. So that's why, that's why with OT, when we assess a client, we're always asking them, what is important to you? What is it that you want to be able to go back to do? Because that meaningful activity gives them a sense of uniqueness and purpose in their life. And that's the driving force to keep them, to make them independent. So in a nutshell, occupation, human occupation, it's essence of who, what makes me become who I am and gives me purpose and sense of like what I want to do with my life at the nuts and bolts foundational core of it. And these different areas of occupational therapy, you can work in from birth to three all the way up through geriatric population. It all depends on what it is that you want to do and where you want to go with this particular profession. So across the lifespan, you can you know participate with clients that, you know, range birth to three all the way up through adulthood. You know, my first job, I'll just share this with you that I worked at a nursing home because I wanted to get, and I wanted to figure out myself, what is occupational therapy? You know, what is this? You know, what, what do I do? You know, deer in a headlight kind of thing. I graduate with high honors and 
I get out in the field and, and I go through my, um, and I went to an excellent school, University of New England, taught me very well. Yeah, you're a man. I'm a, oh, yeah, we're a man now. We park our cars in the yard up there. We go to Walmart, too. <laughs> Every once in a while, I hear you and Jennifer slip it up. And I'm like, what in the blue blazes did they just say? <laughs> See, I was in the service, too. So you, you learn really quickly to, you know, kind of. Coach oh, yeah, especially with the name Toddy. My yeah. last name's Toddy. So, Toddy, get over here, Toddy. What's the matter with you, you know? Wait, wait, wait. For everybody out there, Mr. Paul Toddy was a who army all the way. Yes, right? I, was. I was. That's right. That's right. Before I became an OT, I went went into the army and you know worked on helicopters. So that's an occupation. So that definitely it, it is. It sure is. And before that, I, I was you know I took I took welding, machine tool, and I was all set to go in the trades. So for those people that are just, you know, tuning in and, you know, just kind of learning about these professions, these, you know, ancillary services, doesn't matter where you come from, what you've done, because your life experience brings a richness to what it is that you're bringing to your clients. I mean, yeah. I, I, I yeah. use little, and I'm kind of going off on a rabbit trail, sorry, Michelle, but it kind of, sure. it, it kind of does, it kind of does bring in the whole human occupation thing. You know, tying into this thing where you know, I learned how to sew in home ec in seventh grade, and my mother, you know, taught me how to. It was one of the things you had to tie. You know, you had to sew on a button, you know, to pass the class and learn how to use a sewing machine and stuff like this. And it comes in so handy when I'm working on braces with a client, or if I have to, you know, work on a, like a shoe or, or something like that, and I have to add in a little bit of Velcro to make an extension to fit the brace, and their shoes don't fit anymore, and it's like their favorite shoes. And they're just happening to be Velcro. So what I'll do is I'll, you know, I'll sew an extension on there. And I wouldn't know how to do that without that training that I had in, you know, seventh grade or from my parents, from my mother, you know. And so these life skills that we have, we have this formal training that we get as OTs and I'm sure as, I'm, I'm sure as SLPs as well and PTs, but we bring this, we, br we can bring this richness to what it is that we do. And to provide that to our clients. So this, I'm using this occupation, if you will, to help someone else improve their own ADLs or their, you know, their occupation that it is that they're trying to become more independent with. You know, it's amazing the little things that we can do. So I can tell you the, you know, the definition of occupational therapy, you know, in simplest terms and all that. But it's basically in a nutshell what I, what I just said. It's this, it goes way, so far beyond handwriting or or fine motor therapy see that's the one that kind of makes my the hair on my back you know just kind of back my neck kind of go up when people say oh they're, they're the fine motor therapist it's like yeah you, know, you spend all this money in school to learn a holistic profession that encompasses activities of daily living which is everything that i just mentioned you know and they whittle it down to working on just fine motor skills and it's it's such a it's such a shame because we offer such a richness to um, our clients and our, our patients and to the profession overall. It's so much more than just, just upper extremity or fine motor. And I think there's a, there is a reason for that, or at least my opinion on that. But now we can, I can share that now or we can talk about that later if you want. But Hold up that one second because I just want to explain to the folks that are listening, when he's talking everything for the SLPs that are listening, I mean, we first see most of our OTs in like our school practicums, and a lot of them are working on like primarily fine motor skills. Paul was the person that I turned to when both of my children, who were preemies, both of them had chronic ear infections. Both of them had 
significant periods of bed rest, which inhibited the development of their vestibular system, especially Theo, because I spent the last three months of that pregnancy horizontal. He had any, Paul, he still does more reflex. That's a conversation for later. But anywho, he is the one that through guidance, he helped me teach them both how to crawl and then how to walk. And they had those delays because of birth trauma and prenatal history because my uterus was wonky and now there's no uterus and I need a puppy. But like Paul was the person that, and the, the pun intended in your name, PT, the OT, <laughs> I love it because it totally dispels right there in the title of your business, all of the OT misconceptions. Mm-hmm. I just have to I mean, I don't think my boys would be where they are if it hadn't have been for, I mean, I can't tell y'all out there listening how many videos Paul would send me of do this, do this, do this. And you would definitely use your sweet daughter for like modeling. (laughs) I just have to say she's very patient because I do that with Goose now for like speech modeling. (laughs) Thank you. Okay. But that gets me into, all right. So this whole misconception of OT, that they're the fine motor Mm -hmm. therapist. So explain the misconceptions behind that. Go for it. So I think it has to do with the name itself. You know, when you're talking about occupational therapy, it's just, what is that? You know, it's so abstract because you have PT, that's very concrete, physical therapy. I get it. You're going to work on my, you know, legs, arms, give me exercise, speech therapy. That makes sense. You're going to help me learn how to talk again, you know, and, you know, phonics and all this stuff and different language, whatever. And swallowing. Swallowing. Yeah, swallowing too, of course. <laughs> Feeding, you know, I was going to save that for later. My little, my little surprise, but oh, yeah, okay. but the the thing, occupational therapy. Like I said, I mean, I I went through school. I mean, God, and at the time it was like I said, it was a bachelor's, but I went through school and I studied like crazy because you know I was in the army and it's like I I got to make it through school because I don't want to I don't want to do this for a living. You know, like, <laughs> what am I going to do now? You know, I got to, I got to make it through school, but it, no, it taught me discipline. It taught me how to study and all that. So, so I get out of school and I'm, I'm studying hard and I'm learning all the theory and, and now it gets out into practice and I'm in a nursing home and I'm like, what do I do now? What am I supposed to do? What is this? You know, and I get a mentor and everything and to some degree, this like, you know, just get at it, you know? So I think a lot of it has to do with just the term itself because people don't understand what that means. You, know, you say occupational therapy, they just, yeah. they don't get it. Okay. So there's my little spiel on that. Then when you get in the profession and you get into like, I'll, I'll use myself as an example. My first job, I, I was working in a nursing home and I wanted to get an idea what ADLs were. I wanted some foundational, solid foundational just base, if you will, large base about what OT is. Because how am I going to find out what OT is if I don't, if I just, if I specialize on it? So I needed to really find out a lot about it. So I chose a lot of different things in OT I wanted to learn about. And the first thing was basic things like activities of daily living. So I took a job at a nursing home rehab facility and I started learning about, you know, ADL retraining with adult geriatric patients. And then within six months, the facility that I worked at went all Alzheimer's. So it was like this, oh my God, oh, what am I supposed to do now? You know, oh, I mean, how do you, oh. this is really, this is really tough. I don't know if you work with Alzheimer's patients before, but it's like, I literally, my goals would turn into patient will, you know, feed, here's, here's the feeding plug, feed self one scoop per meal per day. So it was just very simple hand to mouth kind of thing. I mean, I did six weeks in a nursing home and 
because my grandparents helped raise me, that was it. I couldn't because I would see patients like that. And I just wanted to hug all the old people because again, my grandparents helped raise me. So kudos for you for. Oh, I stuck it out. I did. I stuck it out my contract. And then, you know, and I learned, I did learn a ton. I learned a lot of other things, you know, working with families, you know, that was a big thing, but to stay on point, when I got into that, you know, when I first got there, it was told to me that you, you know, OTs do upper body, PTs do lower body. Okay. And that's the way it is. And I was like, why, why is that? I mean, here I am being taught all this wonderful stuff, holistic, whole body, you know, now it's like, okay, you have to work on upper body stuff and ADLs. And, and it, it basically in a nutshell turned into a billing issue. So we PTs and OTs share the same billing codes. For people out there listening, SLPs do not own the SLP codes. OTPT do not own their codes. The physicians own the codes. So there's an overlap in codes just because that's a huge misconception in the rehab world is that each individual branch owns their own CPT codes. We do not. The AMA owns the codes. That was good. I, I, didn't, I didn't realize that. Yeah, which is why it costs millions of dollars to add a CPT code. Millions of dollars to add CPT codes. So, no, no, that's good to know. I didn't, I didn't realize that. that's interesting. So getting back to this little story about billing codes, we, you know, so we share the same code. So I imagine speech, you know, speech therapists would be able to share these codes as well then, right? And which is why we have scope practice encroachment from some of our colleagues. Uh, that's a conversation for a different day, Paul. <laughs> so we're in this industry now. So we come out of college, all these idealistic views, and this is wonderful. We're going to you know, treat patients. We're going to do a great job. And we're going to feel good because they're getting better. They're going home. They're you know, whatever. And now we're told that we're only focusing on from the waist up and arms and you know that kind of thing because PTs are doing from the waist down. And, certain, and these are the billing codes that OTs are going to use. And here's your list. Okay. So right out of school, you're, you've learned all this stuff you get, you know, now I think it's like over a hundred thousand dollars in student loan debt and you get all this great things you want to try and do. And then you go to your first job and they're putting you in a box. You're stuck in this little box where now you have to work on just this, this area because you guys share the same clients. And if there's a billing code that's being used by OT in the morning and PT uses that billing code in the afternoon, there's going to be a a denial and there's going to be a remittance and all this stuff. So to avoid all that, we're just going to keep you in this, this little area. So I think, I think to some degree, that's where this overall conception starts with upper extremity, lower extremity, and that turns into fine motor. And then it turns into handwriting, you know, that kind of thing. So even to the point where I've, I've talked to doctors who, when you ask them about OT, they immediately go, to they're the fine motor therapist and it's like yeah it drives me <laughs> it, just drives, it drives me nuts i'm sorry it just does because i was told by one of my really good friend of mine he was my rehab supervisor at the time i have to share this because he's like you know he talked to me one time pulled me aside and he says paul you're a disruptor you know and i was like i thought that was I thought that was just a bad thing, you know, and I'm like, oh, I felt terrible. You know, I didn't want to disrupt things, you know, being a guy and being in this profession as it is, you know, it's kind of like, you know, it's, it's kind of a weird situation, especially being a big guy and trying to keep a low profile, you know, I don't want to be intimidating but to people, you know, kind of thing and or therapy coworkers. Anyway, he comes, he goes, no, 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 that's a good thing. He goes, he goes, that's, that's really good thing. 
he goes, your PT, the OT. <laughs> I was like, I was like, <laughs> what? He goes, yeah, you're Paul Tardy, the occupational therapist. And I was, I just started laughing and it stuck. He called me PT and the OT in front of the PTs. And it really ticked a lot of my PT friends off because they're like, he's not a PT. He's an OT, you know? Yeah, but you got my boys crawling. I'm just that, saying. And I then walking, that goes into the so. next segue. It's like, it's not, it's not like I'm trying to be a PT. That's not it. But it is a little pun to my PT friends. It's kind of like, you know, because we do as occupational therapists, we actually do hands-on what you would call physical in nature therapy. We're not PTs, but we do a billing code, for instance, is manual therapy. Okay. And you could say that that's physical in nature. We're not feet. We're not physical therapists, but we are a lot of what we do. And I think in the next, the next section of this podcast, will be, if you will, we're going to talk about therapeutic handling, but so my point on this, and that was what he was saying, is that sometimes the, the, the segues into the next little segment as to why I think, you know, OTs are put in this box of fine motor. But I think to some degree, certain, and I don't want to say any names or anything like that, because it's just really a matter of your own, your own skill set and your own comfort level as to whether or not OT should be doing whatever. Okay. And I'll, and I'll kind of lay that out there. Like for in, uh, for instance, I have client A that I got to take into the bathroom. And that's part of what we're doing is toilet transfers, but he's in his bed. Yeah. Okay. He's in his bed right now. And we had to get from bed to toilet. So we're going to, I'm going to help him with bed mobility. We're going to stand up with transfer training, and then we're going to use whatever device net needed to get him to be able to walk into the bathroom and do a toilet transfer. Okay. So in the middle of all of this, okay, A to B, bed to toilet, physical therapist comes in during the session, sees me walking patient A with a, with a walker and using, using a gate belt, going to the bathroom yeah. and says, hey, what are you doing working on gate training? You know, uh, it's like, no, there's, and this, by the way, is just a fictitious story. This never happened. But Really? I could see that happening like Monday Friday. Now, I'm sure this happened in my career more than one. Hey, of course it's happened. This happened a lot. Anyway. <laughs> so, so, everybody so, you know, of course this has happened. This has happened in oh, so many different ways. You know, so my response oh. would be, uh, well, we're not working on gate training. We're working on functional <laughs> mobility. Blah, blah, blah. So it turns into this turf thing. That's my point on this. It's yeah. the turf war yeah. and we own this turf. Okay. So, and I, I hate that about this because look, if you have the skill set and you know what you're doing and it's in your scope of practice, then go for it. Share me some stuff. You know, I want to learn too. And, oh, and have you tried this? And look what I learned. And can I learn from that? And that is what I've always promoted as being an OT. I've always loved hanging around people, other therapists who are collaborative because it's just so much more enriching to be around these people. And I think OTs overall in general are really low key. They're just, you know, and not to say that PTs aren't or speech therapists aren't, but I think low OTs in general are just kind of goofy and like to fool around. And, you know, we're trying to figure out what we're doing anyway, trying to figure out what OT is. And everybody's asking us, what's OT? And we're like, I don't know. I'm trying to figure it out too. But, and I've been doing this for about 25 years. I'm still trying to figure out what we do. But anyway, point being okay. is that okay. we share, there's overlap between what we do. And isn't that, a wonderful thing because who benefits, you know, we do as clinicians, but ultimately the patient, the patient is the one who benefits. So if I can go in there and I see a PT working on toilet hygiene, I'm like, hallelujah, 
because nobody wants to work on that. Everybody, you know, when there's toilet hygiene issue, oh, that's the OT's job. <laughs> What's the word for toilet hygiene? There's a word for it. Toilet hygiene? Yeah, there's a word for it. It's not perinatal care. What is the word? I've always called it toilet hygiene, but you can call it peri. You can call it peri care. No, there's a word for it because I asked an OT one time what they were doing in the bathroom because I was confused why they had a patient in the bathroom. And there's a word Pericare. for yeah. Yeah. pericare. That's yeah, what it pericare. is, pericare. And I was like, what is that? She goes, I'm teaching them to wipe their katukas. Yeah. I was like, better yeah, use my no, friend. That's and nobody, no, and exactly. No, and you know what's funny about it too is that <laughs> nobody argues whose who's scope of practice that falls under. No, <laughs> no, 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 absolutely. You know? <laughs> okay, so there's, I have, when I've lectured, and when I was when I was over on the West Coast, there was a significant concern about scope of practice overlap with OTs for okay. feeding and swallowing. And it blew my mind because, okay, so full story, when I was out there, the Physical Therapist State Association, who has a very large lobbying arm, had just had their licensure act open and expanded. So in California... The physical therapists are doing feeding and swallowing in the NICU. The PTs are. Yeah, because their lobbying branch of their state association is that large. And so when I was out there lecturing, there was all these PTs in the room. And I was like, why are you here? They're like, we have to do feeding and swallowing now. I was like, says who? And they were like, says our new scope of practice update. And I was like, I don't know how to help you. I don't work in a hospital. <laughs> so like, I felt really bad that they came to my lecture because my lecture is all home health, early intervention clinic kind of stuff. But there was a lot of SLPs that were really territorial, really marking their turf because they were like, we have already had to deal with OTs thinking that they can do what we do. And now we have to deal with physical therapists. And so when I opened my mouth and I said, yeah, but you actually need OTs for feeding and swallowing, like murder eyes from my own world of speech pathologists. But Folks, let me make this perfectly clear. We don't know about reflex integration. We're not taught reflex integration. We're not taught even reflexes for PO intake in our wheelhouse because it's not brought up. I have learned about reflex integration. I have learned about innate swallow mastication, babbling reflexes because of central pattern generators, because of conversations. All of that research that I lecture on has been direct outgrowth from the conversations that Paul and I have had co-treating patients for, God bless it, what, the last six years, Paul? Five years? Six years? How long have we worked together? Five or six years now. And, And it has made me chase all of that research. So Mm. I cannot ask a child that is overstimulated, that is deregulated to turn around and try an advanced solid and advanced if they're on honey thick and I can't ask them to trial a thin liquid if they don't have the prerequisites, hand to mouth, sitting up straight, 90-90 posture. I can't ask them to do any of those things without the occupational therapist going in and building a strong core, without the OT teaching that kid to put their house on stones instead of sand to shift it. I can't do the thing I do unless I work collaboratively with an occupational therapist. I feel very strong-willed and opinionated on that. And I've asked physical therapists to work with me. And been Paul, I've been flat out told by a PT in the Midlands that your job is above the clavicle 
My job is below. I don't see how we should co-treat together. You should work with the occupational therapist. And I'm like, the kid can't sit up straight. Kid can't hold their head up. How am I supposed to work Mm -hmm. on PO? And they were like, you should talk with the OT. And I'm like, and at the time, you didn't have an opening call. (laughs) (laughs) I don't have a clone machine to clone you. So it's like, we have a problem. But folks, this is where we hit critical mass with our colleagues. This is why we should be working. Oh, amen to that. I told, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I mean, this is not, I mean, you need a phenomenal dynamic occupational therapist in your corner going to bat working with you for these complex kids. And if you don't, well then for lack of a better phrase, seek advice around. Because I mean, like, like you said, we all have our unique roles. Like the umbrella of occupational therapy is so large. The umbrella of speech pathology is so large. Do not give me the kid that stutters. I will make it worse. Don't give me the kid that has artic phonology issues, bears and therapy for that. This is yes. Yay. Okay. My soapbox done. No, I, I, (laughs) you know, and to to kind of add on to that, it's one of my pet peeves, to be honest. It's something that if I can do my biggest thing in this profession, if I can, you know, within, within the ancillary services, if I can contribute to a collaborative approach across the board, and I'm talking PT, OT, each yes. and be a bridge to, to the disciplines instead of this competitiveness, that would be, I would be very happy as a, as a, you know, finishing, you know, like an end all statement because that division. And I think, you know, I get going back to the original question, this whole thing about fun, you know, fine motor therapy and all this, this, this whole competitiveness, I think that's the third point that I was going to build on or at least mentioned was that this competitiveness starts in the universities. And it's unfortunate because, because the, in order to get in the program to begin with, at least when I was in, it was, you had to have like a 3.5 or 3.8 to get in the program. And, and out here I am transferring in, I'm going into school. I don't know if prior service had something to do with it because they knew they were going to get money because I think money, maybe I I don't know if money's, I hate to think that, but there were, yeah, yeah, they, probably, yeah, money. Yeah. Uh, who am I kidding? Money, money talks, right? But the there were people. <laughs> Isn't there a lawsuit out west on that exact same yeah. issue right now? Yeah, just saying. There were people waiting yeah. to get in the program back then, and you know, I, I graduated in '95, so you know, when I got in the program, you had to maintain this GPA while you're in the program. Otherwise, you're out. Someone else is in. So d- throughout, you're even being competitive with the people that you're going to be your cohorts. So not to mention yeah. across the aisle, when you get PTs that are studying, you know, in, in your anatomy class. And I just remember how extremely competitive would you get on that grade? And, and it got to the point where it was like, I didn't tell anybody what I got anymore because there would be this resentment. You got a 90, whatever. And I, you know, it was just, it was awful. It was just awful. And I think that these, the universities need to stop doing, I don't know how they can implement that. I know they can inc- incorporate more of a collaborative approach because this competitiveness is is just not helping our patient case. It's not helping, you know, uh, as we work together in various settings, it's not, it's not, it doesn't help when we work with our client. It, do- it certainly doesn't help our clients when we're being competitive because it's like, you know, I have to be the one to, you know, to, you know, to be successful in this area. And it's just, it's point. just, it's unfortunate. So when we do come across these, other therapists who are still willing to learn. I haven't arrived. I've arrived as a therapist. You know, I'm still willing to learn. And um, 
willing to share ideas and not be afraid of like, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, there's so much to know. I can't know it all. And being yeah. okay with that, I guess being okay within your own skin, those are the kind of therapists that really, in my opinion, are the ones that really are working towards this, this collaborative approach. You know, it's unfortunate this physical therapist said that to you. And I want to touch base on this, this whole PT thing, learning how to do feeding, because I think speech should learn how to do gait training. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's be perfectly clear. I definitely almost dropped Theodore when he was like six weeks old. So like, maybe not this <laughs> speech therapist, but like... No, seriously, though, to uh, scale it back. Okay, and everybody out there listening, when I have a patient that I am concerned with transitioning and moving, and Paul and I are on the same, Paul and I are sharing the case, I will call him and ask him, how do you do this? How do you do this? And some, and after we have HIPAA consent or parent consent, and it's not, you know, clearly not a HIPAA violation, Paul will send me videos. I'll send Paul videos of what we're working on, or we'll try when we can. And, and this is like an act of God and the stars have to align. We'll actually try to do co-treats. And that's, and the beauty of that, folks, if you don't, if you aren't already practicing co-treatments, get out there and co-treat with your OTs because, and don't, don't go in it with, I'm going to teach the OT or I'm going to teach the speech pathologist what they need to learn. Truthfully go in it with a seek to understand mind frame and soul, because I have learned so much about all of it going in. And, and when you describe it, also, you and I have the uncanny ability to do self-deprecating humor and also be walking encyclopedia, encyclopedias at the same time. So like when we go in, we're rapid fire. And in case you haven't picked up, Paul and I both have a touch of ADD, ADHD. So we're like, blah, 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 like a million miles an hour. And sometimes when we get done, the parents are like, what just happened? <laughs> but like, I know that for those kids that you and I co-treat on and have treated together, I have seen those kids. Oh my goodness! Yeah, I totally agree. Totally, and the parents. Yeah, and that. If I can add in there too, Michelle, cool. the parents. There's just there's less stress. The last thing you yes. need to add into these to these families is more stress. I mean, they're already stressed out. And if you if you can add in a team, there's nothing like having a collaborative team, like minded. You know, the therapist that they're they're not you know hell bent on their ego. They're willing to learn. I don't know it all. T teach me some stuff. Oh, wow. What's, what's, you know, being respectful. Let's, let's, let's keep this together as a group. Let's, you know, what is so-and-so think, what does PT think about this? What is, you know what I mean? This is so much more beneficial to the client. The families pick up on that. It's just, um, it's just the way, to, it's, it's the only way to go. Okay. So this goes perfect segue into the next question. And don't worry. Mr. Paul Tardy, the awesomeness OTRL, now that I know what that stands for, is coming back for part two in July. And we're covering therapeutic handling then because I know everybody is now like, okay, so I need to know more. But to close this one, and I say that because we have 20 minutes and I know you and I will chase all the squirrels here, but crash course me and everybody listening in the whole child approach and how that overlaps with the SLP scope of practice, because this is a perfect sure. segue. So uh, like what we do, obviously, with in the different settings that we work in, the child-centered OT could be, we start from the beginning, birth to three, birth to three years old, home setting, medical model. Once they turn to three, three to five, pre-K, 
You could work in the preschool setting, doing more educational model, less medical model, more educational model, and then school-based therapy, you know, five years old all the way up till 18, it's more educational model. Now, the IEP and the IFSP, they're under the same law. So it's still a family-centered approach. So individual family-centered plan. And when it turns into IEP, it's individual education plan, but it's still a family-centered plan. So the family is still massively part of that whole team. If they do have an, a medical, you know, it's more of a medical, severe medical condition, then the child would be recommended to a clinic or in our case, in, in, here in South Carolina, just love the state in that, in the respect that we can continue on with working with the child in a home setting or clinic-based setting, community-based setting, if you will, doing more medical model and, uh, you know, kind of a little bit more of an educational model as well. So that's, uh, there's a lot of freedom for that. I don't like this, you know, once they're in school, we can't work on that as an OT because that's more medical model and you need to, if it, you know, how does it impact their education, blah, blah, blah. And I think that's a cop-out because if the child can't do a certain thing, for instance, walk from class to class, then that, that's impacting their education. They can't satisfactorily access their education. And you could, you could say that's more of a medical model, but not really, because if they can't sit still and regulate, then they need more of a sensory diet. They need more pullout time. They need more education on teachers. They need more environmental adaptations to make changes to the environment so they can regulate better. They need little little fidgets and things like this, and which would you could kind of classify that as more of a medical model, but it does impact their education. So I guess I'm on the, the side of, you know, let's see if it works. Let's work on this. Let's try it versus saying, no, we're not going to do that because that clearly is in that model. So I'm very, I guess I'm eclectic in that sense, in that sense or I'm more open to crossing the boundaries a little bit on that. But so those are the different settings, if you will. And then there's a connection with speech, the piece on early intervention, because this is the area that I'm working in right now uh, in medically fragile kids. If a child that I see first, you know, and I'm just one of, one of the kids that we're seeing together, failure to thrive, zero head control, uh, over a year old and not able to roll over, can't sit up, greatly impacts the ability to have a, a safe, effective swallow, being able to hold your head up or peristalsis. And once they are fed, be able to, you know, pass that food along all, all the way down until, so they can have a BM. So to go poop. go poop, right. So if, if they're not, yeah. if they're not active, <laughs> if they're not moving at all, there's a huge piece of what I do it to when I first go in, like you mentioned before, rhythmic movement or reflex integration, there's certain techniques that you can do to help stimulate the RAS, reticular activating system, which stimulates the arousal centers of the brain, okay, to get the child to start moving versus just laying there. And they're, they're very simple, basic little things you can do that you wouldn't think of. And these are some of the things that I teach Mom. So for in, I'll give you an example. For instance, the child has zero head control. And developmentally, we know we have to have head control before we have trunk control, trunk control before we have limb control. Trunk control, head control before we can actually safely 
you know, do the oral stage of the oral pharyngeal dysphagia. Yeah. yeah. So the, the piece of this is to collaborate like with you. And this is where I think speech needs to be a part of this. So we talked about like, you know, going the full spectrum and, and have a speech therapist do gay training. But, you know, we laughed a little bit about it, but <laughs> I think speech therapists definitely should be doing some handling and, and should be trained on how to get that child moving so that they can develop neck flexion, neck extension, co-contraction of the head of the neck muscles so they can maintain upright seated, seated position with their head. So their head doesn't flop to the side. Okay, Paul, you just used a whole bunch of words that I guarantee 97% of the SLPs in the room have no frigging okay. clue what you said. So explain head flexion versus head extension. Okay, so we're, you have a child on their, on their back, okay? And you, you want them to pick their head up against gravity, okay? So they're sitting on their back. They're laying on their back, and you want them to pick their head up against gravity. That would be neck flexion. Okay, so for the SLPs in the room, we do that exercise with our adult patients, the Shakir or Shaker position. So that's what we do with our adults. That's a swallowing exercise we implement with geriatric patients. But how do we work on that with our pediatric populations? Paul has shown me where you do like a slow pull to sit, but then there's counter indications like when the head tips backwards. Like you've shown me with different kids how you have to hold from like, their shoulders from their arms and from their correct hands. yeah excellent so yeah that's yeah. a that's a good so we naturally this is the nice part about therapy is that these movements we naturally they're hardwired into our brainstem we want to be perpendicular to gravity so our head wants to look at the world in an upright perpendicular position it doesn't look horizontally with the world so that's hardwired into our brainstem so we can tap into that function and use these exercises like you said pull to sit in situations, and that could be a podcast in itself, but when you work on that activity, or like in a swing, for instance, you have a child who's in a swing, and they have no head control, but the head will go where the eyes go, okay? So if you can have, if you have their yeah. eyes focused on a fixated target, and they're in a swing moving in a linear motion front to back, and they're watching, let's say, your, I know this sounds terrible, because it's, you know, the, the iPhone and, and things like this are um, always shunned at because it's not it's not healthy. But we'll, we'll we'll deal with that problem later on when they get older, right? The addiction to their cell phone. But I always I always say this to parents that okay, so they like Mickey Mouse, so we'll put Mickey Mouse on the on the thing. They're in the swing, and now instead of having their head fall back and sh and just rest, now they're picking their head up because they want to watch the show. So the head will go where the eyes go, and the body goes where the head goes. So neck flexion would be coming against gravity and supine. Okay. And then neck extension would be if they're in prone or on their belly, they're picking their head up against gravity. And, and typically when a child, a newborn, what they'll start doing, one of the first things they'll start doing is pick their head up and then they'll, they'll turn their head from left to right or vice versa. And so that the other cheek will touch the ground, the, the, the floor. And they do that over and over and over and over again until they finally get strong enough and then they start to put their, you know, they'll figure out how to, they'll roll over to the side a little bit and their hand will come up and they'll put themselves in what we call propped prone position. But I just use that as a, a little example as in terms of like how OT and speech are, are related because, and this is where we need to work together to work on, and this is where speech should be coming in and reinforcing. And I would be so happy if, if I came in and, 
and speech therapists were, hey, we're looking on, we're working on, excuse me, the neck flexion, neck extension. The child is better able to hold their head upright against gravity. And now we're working on trunk control because we're all working for the same goal. And that goal is for that child to swallow that food without choking or aspirating. I'm just thinking how theoretically we can actually incorporate that into core curriculum. I know that at the local university here in town, USC, they actually have a mandatory class for their phys- it's PT, speech pathology, and their physicians program. Where And I think it's like a Saturday class a couple of times a semester where they actually have to go and talk about what their roles are. And it starts the conversation of overlap of scope of practice, but it's a start. And it's also small breakout groups with a bunch of students that still don't, like you said earlier, they still don't know what it is that they actually do within Mm. that scope. I don't know, Paul, I get to thinking every once in a while that we really should. And I've had a really, really amazing psychologist, Dr. Kay Toomey, and she specializes in pediatric feeding and swallowing. Yeah. And she said, you know, because I I made the suggestion that we should actually put in lectures at each other's state association conferences. And she was like, we have to start even smaller than that. She said, there's such a huge disconnect within our different worlds, especially within pediatricians understanding what we do. And you and I both know, even in the immediate area, pediatricians don't understand what it is that our different professions do. She was like, we have to start there. We have to start going there and educating at like a fundamental grassroots effort Mm -hmm. to build up. And, and when she said that I have stewed on it and I don't have enough money to buy donuts for all the different pediatricians in the immediate area, but Mm. she's absolutely right. Yeah. That that was one of my visions that I had in, in a past life work experience to be able to tap into the the residents because I think the residents are where we need to start because I think the the pediatricians who are already working you know they, it's almost like they already have their mind made up or what like OTs of the fine motor therapy <laughs> OTs of the fine motor therapists yeah. you know and it's like if we could start with the residents or at the collegiate level when they're in school and then that would be the thing to do I think Michelle because then you know you don't necessarily have to buy donuts you know, being a plant-based guy myself and, you know, once in a while, I guess it's okay, but, you know, we could, we could give them smoothies, let's say, you know, you know, and teach them, give them a little bit of a, you know, teach them a little bit about nutrition. That would be, that would be their, that would be their CE for nutrition that they've learned, that they've learned. I say that jokingly, I'm only teasing. I know. I'm thinking of a little one that I saw today that you and I both treat. And man, one of the first foods that girl threw down that was what I would consider like an advanced texture was a donut. And she like devoured that freaking thing. And like it cracks me up. Okay. So for those of you that don't know it, Paul's bride is Jennifer Tardy eating with healing. Her and I have done, I think, two lectures together. I feel like we need to have her back for a third. And um, one of them was on... um, business practices for starting referrals. And another one was regarding uh, one of y'all's sons and his EOE and y'all's unique walk. So y'all are very plant-based, non-GMO. And I have, in my own little world, jumped on the bandwagon Yay! of going. Um, yeah, and and I'm like nine months into being a pescatarian. Oh, yay! <laughs> 
I need my beer battered cod and a cold pint. <laughs> so like, but okay. So just to, just to add into that, keep the cold beer. I'll be with you. Okay, I'm with you on that. But we're <laughs> instead of the cod, we're, what we're gonna do is get some Gardein brand. I don't know if I can mention that on the you know because I'm not I'm not plugging for them, but they are really good. The fish that they have, really good. And then so we'll have fish and chips and the beer, and there you go. I'll be with you. Okay, game, word. Although I do need Jennifer's lentil loaf recipe. So I'm just saying, okay, this correlates to the whole child approach with the child. I have seen y'all give guidance because of your unique dynamic, your business practice, your PTBOT, and she does eating for healing and with her nutrition background. And y'all have given guidance to several of our families. And I know it's not stereotypical sensory diet, but you do encourage families to eradicate sugar from their diet and so much processed foods. And when you incorporate that with your sensory diet, um, like the Wilbarger, how do you say it? Wilbarger? Yeah, Pat Pat Wilbarger is the, yeah, she's the one that came up with the, the brushing protocol. Her, actually Pat was the daughter, is the daughter, I believe. And the, the her mom okay. is the one that came up with the the, the brushing protocol. That you know is fairly familiar, pretty much in the therapy world. Everybody kind of knows about the brushing. But w- when you do that with joint compressions, and then you do, and we'll do therapeutic handling in the next session. But when you guys tie all that in, and you're also treating holistically, and have you know eliminated all of these. And I'm gonna go out there and just honestly call it what it is, folks. It's the toxins in the foods that we eat. My goodness, does it open up the world for the kids oh, that we treat? Yeah, it it's it's, it's really night and day. Yeah. When the and um, when the the tough part is 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 making the commitment. You know, the parent making the commitment to make the change. Well, but but once they do, these kids that you know, and I, there's a bunch I can think of just off you know, hand that who diagnose mm-hmm. autism. Is it really aut? That's my question. Is it really autism? We eliminate these poisonous things that are in the food, you know, glyphosate. We get rid of the, you know, the the GMOs. We get rid of the high fructose corn syrup, the MSG. You know, all, you get rid of these artificial food colorings and artificial fl- flavoring, and then all of a sudden you start putting in organic food, and then all of a sudden the behaviors, the sensory related behaviors, are no longer as apparent. Then there's a massive correlation between what these kids are putting in their mouths and these sensory related behaviors. So it's, it's almost a prerequisite. It is a prerequisite for me now before I even pick up a child who has the, you know, they want a sensory diet and it's like, okay, you're going to have to do some work on your end. And the unfortunate thing is, is a lot mm-hmm. of times what I found is that the parents have these addictions themselves. So they're unwilling to give up their own addictions to you know make the difference. The ones that are on a happier note, the ones that are, these kids diagnosed with these conditions, you know, autism, sensory, you know, SPD, they end up, well, like these, this is what gets me, keeps me fired up. This is what gets me going in, in OT is when they, one of them in particular, I, I think of out of many, he's mainstream, totally mainstream, no sent, no special need, not, not getting any services at all. And when I saw him, when I first started seeing him early intervention, zero three, open and closing doors, that's all he would do. Open, close doors, open, close doors. And flick his fingers in his eyes, do repetitive motions, no eye contact. And now he's big brother and he's doing all normal things like normal kids do. And he's not getting any services at all. He's he's 100% mainstream. So massive, huge success story. 
with him and, and he's one of one of many kids you know i wish it was more michelle you know i wish the the parents would and, and by the way thank you so much for supporting that on one of the on one of the kiddos that we see together absolutely because i mean i have seen the difference it's made in the other patients that we've collaborated with and hell i've seen what it's done in my own family you know christian gave up sugar for lent i'm just saying and he's had a lot more energy and the downside is uh the dark chocolate in the fridge did not get eaten as much and i did not realize how much dark chocolate (laughs) i was consuming (laughs) so jack it okay all right I have to be respective of our time, sweet friend, because we have like literally two minutes left and I'm sure we're going to yeah, have Yeah, of course. And I, ho- I hope I answered that yeah. question. I hope I didn't go off on a rabbit trail too much, but tried to make it the connection between OT and PT, early interventions, excuse me, OT and speech with the early intervention kiddo, the, the, the whole connection. You did. You did. And I'm so looking forward to having you back because therapeutic Hanley, I always joke that Paul, and I do this because I love you, but I have previously joked that Paul is my big friendly giant because he palms the kids like a basketball. And if you've ever heard me talk live, there's the slide that I show that blue swing. And I always joke how like Paul and Jennifer can find that blue swing everywhere. This is the Paul whose hand is like in the swing and he does, he can palm the babies like a (laughs) tiny basketball. And he does the most amazing rendition of row, row, row your boat I've ever heard. <laughs> become all things, right? Yeah, become all things. Yeah. yeah. But I'm just saying, you do it and we love it. Whatever you, works, but, Michelle. Okay. Whatever works, you right? Know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I actually ran into an opera singer of all things today. And she was talking about singing and she was like, I love it. And it's good for my soul and blah, blah. And I'm like. I sing a really terrible rendition of Baby Shark. That's what, you know, that's what I love about the kids, though. There's no judgment. Judgment. Yes. No, no judgment. judgment. I Let can us sing know. and I can dance in front of them. And I would never do that in front of, you know, grownups. But, you know. We can yes. be our true yeah, selves. And working I, can make, you know, I can yes. make cookies out of Play-Doh and you know, have tea parties with little girls. And I'm 6'2", I'm 240. Yeah, and I like to lift weights and I'm, you know, in the... <laughs> But yeah, it's okay. I, you know, <laughs> I drive a little Xbox Scion too, and I, I'm totally okay with that. That's hysterical. Christian drives that little bitty Volkswagen, and when he pops out of it, I'm like, what? But like, okay, I listen oh, to Metallica I when I go to the gym, and I get my manliness back. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. You know, it works. It balances with the row, yeah, row, row, you boat. Yeah. Oh my God. This is great. Okay. All right. Hold um, hold on one second, Paul, before we switch yeah. over to questions. I do have to, um, now the Mr. Paul knew this, but everybody out there listening does not know, but um, hanging with us today is the lovely Miss Allison. Allison is a freshly minted CF practicing in the low country. So Allison, say hi. Hi. How are you guys? How's it going? Are you stressing? It's going great. Uh, good right now. Good, good right now. That's because it just started. You have That's no idea the right. nine months ahead of you. And hanging out in the back over in the corner, Paul, we had another friend come in, is the one and only Miss Annalise, who is just starting grad school. So Annalise, how are you doing? I'm good. Hey, everyone. <laughs> you, I, I like how we're all like at different levels of our um, academic careers here. And Paul and I are like, you still don't know anything. We don't know anything. Fine. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right. So I do have to do a shameless plug for a course I'm giving in a month on Friday, July 19th in the glorious Greenville, South Carolina. Now, McCullough Therapeutic Solutions is hosting a six-hour 
live pediatric dysphagia ASHA CEU course, and we're going to jump into central pattern generators, or as I like to call them, my evidence-based practice reason for why I do not utilize chewy tubes or vibrating sticks in my intervention practices, as well as evaluation for kiddos with unique disabilities, appropriate professions to refer to and why, as well as functional treatment options. So visit www.mtskids.com backslash continuing hyphen education for more information and to register. And you can find McCullough Therapeutic Solutions on Facebook as well as Instagram. So Paul, thank you for hanging through this shameless plug and introducing two lovely ladies to the world of speech pathology. And hold tight. I'm going to switch over to the questions. Okay. Hey, Michelle here. Did you know that First Bite, Fed, Fun, and Functional is partnered up with FeedingMatters.org? That's right. Our pod courses and webinars can be found on the FeedingMatters.org learning center. Also, be sure to mark your calendars for two days of evidence-based education on pediatric feeding disorders, the entirely virtual 2020 International Pediatric Feeding Disorders Conference. That's right. On January 24th through 25th, 2020, join pediatric feeding leading experts for intermediate and advanced level sessions, no matter your location. For more information, visit ipfdc.org. One more time. That's ipfdc.org. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and eat those babies. Oh, 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 oh